What a beautiful song. It's a beautiful idea. It seems like so much of the Christian life is really learning to become satisfied in Christ. And as we do, here's what happens. We can let go of the other things that we thought were going to satisfy us. So it's like this process of, of gaining hold of Him and letting go of other things. I, I can be satisfied with Him in this area of my life, which means, oh, wow, I can let this go. And I can be satisfied here, and I can let this go, and He'll fill me here, and so I can let go of this thing that I've been trying to fill myself with, and it's just been like pouring through a sieve. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't stay. It doesn't quench. It makes thirstier, actually. And one of the things that we want to hang on to, guys, are the wrongs and the injuries that have been committed against us, and even more than that, our opportunities to get back at the people who have committed them against us. Man, we cling tightly, and we're not supposed to do that. So we're going to talk about that today as we return to our study of the book of 1 Samuel, and we come to what is, if you've been with us, you already know, the third of three consecutive vengeance stories, meaning three stories in which David is given this amazing, incredible, you've got to be kidding me, you know, here it is on a silver platter opportunity to take matters into his own hands and finally and fully to avenge himself against someone who has massively injured and offended him. In this case, Saul. I want you to think about Saul for a minute, and I want you to think about David, and then I want you to think about those people that you're holding on and waiting for the opportunity to crush when you get a chance. And I want you to ask yourself, as badly as those people have harmed and injured you, is it nearly as badly as David has been harmed and injured by Saul? Because by this point in the narrative, if you've been hanging with us this year, you know that now for years, Saul has been trying to find ways directly and indirectly, creatively and not creatively at all, to murder David. And not just David, his whole family has had to leave the land of Israel for fear of their lives, dispossessing them of everything they have. This man has been on the run, frantically running from place to place, from wilderness to wilderness. He's been deprived of everything. And not just him, but his band of 600 not-so-merry men as well. Oh, and their families. We've sustained a lot of offenses in life, and there are a whole lot of stories in this room. There really are. But my goodness, God gave David, really gave him a Saul. So as we come to the third of these three stories, I went back to see what I said about the first two, and what I realized is I didn't talk that much about vengeance, but here's what we did say, and it's very important. It is a serious mouthful. We did say that when it comes to avenging ourselves, okay, yeah, we're not supposed to do that, and here's the principle. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That should sound familiar to you because it's all over. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. There is a consistent witness of Scripture on this issue, and that is that vengeance for the people of God, for those of us who belong to the true King who is Jesus, doesn't really belong to us. It belongs instead to the Lord. And we've said as well that practically speaking, here's what that means. It means that you and I need to take our Saul, whoever that may be, and we need to entrust that person together with all of the injuries and all of the offenses that they've committed against us in this life. And that can be a really big deal to God. And then we need by faith to trust God to deal with them on our behalf. And get this, However, and whenever it is that he decides to do that, which I personally find often not to be on my time schedule and not nearly quite the way that I would have it done. But belonging to the greater king means submitting to the greater wisdom. It means recognizing that God will mete out his justice and perfectly either in this life or in the next. 
You know, he's not nearly in as big a hurry as me. And he's not nearly as vicious. So, at least at this point in the story, having done two vengeance stories thus far, we've learned what we are to do with the people who harm and injure us in this life. But here's what we haven't learned, and that's what brings us to today. We haven't learned what to do for them, because here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn that, hey God, here they are, you deal with it. Okay, that's not enough. Our duties extend beyond that. So we pick up our study today, 1 Samuel 26, beginning in verse 1, and it starts with a key word. It starts with the word then. Now, what is then encompassing? Well, it's encompassing the previous two vengeance stories, like the one in chapter 24, for example, where the Ziphites, this is actually something that matters, come to King Saul. They side with Saul against David. And they say, hey, you know what, uh, King, David is hiding out in our backyard. Thought you might be interested in hearing that since we know that you'd like to kill him. The whole nation knows that he wants to kill him. And what does Saul do in that story? Well, he gathers up, please listen to the language, 3,000 chosen men of Israel. You'll hear that again today. And he goes after David. Then he's called away to fight the Philistines, but then he comes back and he pursues David and David and his men are hiding in En Gedi and unbeknownst to Saul, they're trapped, David and his men, in this massive cave that Saul unwittingly, unknowingly, wanders into all alone to, you know, go to the bathroom is the key, is the point. And he places himself in a really vulnerable position, giving David just this amazing opportunity to walk right up and Take care of him. Game over. What does David do? He says, you know what, God? Here he is. You deal with him. Wow. And he lets him go free. So when we come to our story, then encompasses that, but it also encompasses what happened in chapter 25, and we saw that last week, where this guy Nabal, whose actual name means literally foolishness, behaves very foolishly toward David. He massively offends and injures David and his men. He withholds generosity from them when it's due. There's all this cultural stuff happening, and David and his men are incredibly angry, and so David takes 400 of his guys, and he's riding to the house of Nabal, and they are going to wipe out Nabal, and they're going to wipe out his whole household, But before they get there, they encounter Nabal's really amazing wife. And she brings the word of the Lord to David, and he is humble enough to receive it, incidentally. And his passions subside. And he says, you know what, boys? We're going to do something different. We're not going to destroy this guy. We're going to do with him what we did with Saul in the last story. We're just going to take him. We're going to entrust him to God. Hey, God, here he is. You deal with it. Okay, so we come to chapter 26. Then, meaning after all of that, the Ziphites, good grief, there they are again. The Ziphites once again came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon, meaning in our backyard again, king? So they do here the same thing that they did back in chapter 23 leading up to 24. There's a pattern developing, and it's very familiar And Saul here does the exact same thing as well. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with, oh, here it is, 3,000 chosen men of Israel. I'm guessing the exact same guys that he used in vengeance story number one to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph and not to throw him a barbecue, you know, but to kill him. That's the point. And so then if you're watching these stories and you're listening carefully, what you're realizing is, if I'm connecting the dots, okay, so the next thing that's going to happen in Vengeance Story number 3, because it's following the same pattern as Vengeance Story number 1, is that Saul is going to somehow unwittingly 
place himself into the hands of David, and David is then going to have another, you've got to be kidding me, on a silver platter opportunity to wipe out his enemy. That's what you expect. It's not what happens. There are so many similarities between the first story and this third story. But the dissimilarities are where this story distinguishes itself, and that's where the meaning of the story is found. Look for the differences. See, instead of wandering into some cave or whatever that David and his men are hiding in, we read that then Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. So Saul comes down this road, which runs through the valleys. You know, that's the way roads typically run. They don't go over the mountain. They go in between them. And he comes and he encamps on a hillside on one side of the valley, the idea being that there's a hillside well on the other side of the valley too that we'll see here in a second. And he encamps on that hillside, but David remained in the wilderness, and now watch what David does. It says that David saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, and so David got his men together and he said, guys, we got to get out of here because, well, you know, three things. A, he's come to kill us, not throw us a barbecue. B... He outnumbers us five to one and his soldiers, I mean, I hate to, you know, insult you guys, but they're the best in all Israel. We're kind of a ragtag group, not going to lie. And three, we're already committed to this principle of, hey, God, here he is. You deal with it. You take care of it. So our job, get away from this guy. That is the safest and best thing for us to do. Well, for us. But it isn't about us only, is it? David will teach us that today. So that's what you expect him to do, but that's not what he does. First, we read that David sent out spies, and he learned that Saul had indeed come. So confirmation, and he now knows where he is. And then we read that David himself rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. So now, wait a minute, who's pursuing who now? It's changing, see, and even subtly within the story it changes because the language is Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David here, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul. There's a pivot in the story where the hunted becomes the hunter, where the pursuee becomes the pursuer, where David, who we expected to leave, stays, and not only stays, he he pursues, he's up to something. And it's something incredibly significant. It says, and David saw, now where did he see from? The hill on the opposite side of the valley, you see. From that vantage point, he can see Saul's whole camp is the point. And David saw the place where Saul lay asleep with Abner. He's significant. The son of Ner, why is he significant? Because he is at this point the commander of Saul's army, the one chosen by Saul to be his chief protector and the guy who holds the position that David once held until Saul demoted him and put him in the front lines of battles, hoping, you know, that he'd be killed in battle. Just one of the many ways Saul has sought to get rid of David. So David sees the layout of the whole camp, and he sees, and this is important as well, that Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped, or what it says literally is, while the army was encircled around him. And the reason that's significant is because to the mind of an Israelite, here's what that does. That tells you that Saul 
is placed within the context of this camp in the most holy, the most inviolable, the most impenetrable place. And not simply because he has 3,000 guys encircled around him, but because when you go back into the Bible and you go back to the story of the Exodus and Moses leads the people of Israel up out of Egypt and they walk around in the desert, you'll remember, for 40 years camping. Guess how they camped? Just like this. Instead of camping in a circle around their earthly king, however, they camped in a circle around their divine king. They camped around the tent or the tabernacle of the Lord God himself, at the head of which, if you will, was the most holy place. And guess what you were not allowed to do? Go in there. You were not allowed to penetrate that part of the camp. So what does this suggest to the mind of a David? It suggests that Saul, who is the earthly king of Israel, who has been anointed by the divine king of Israel, is inviolable. He's off limits. There is a place where you cannot go, and that is literally into the body of Saul. He's impenetrable, let's say, for example, by a spear. And so then when David sees this, recognizes this, he goes back to his men and says, guys, you know what, I've been reminded... We just need to pack up and go. Hey, God, here he is. You deal with him because we're leaving. But that's not what he does because it's not enough, as it turns out. So then we begin to read in verse 6, and we see the brilliance and the strategery of David. Everything that happens is utterly premeditated. Everything that happens, he predicts, foresees, and really, in some sense, arranges so as to happen just the way it does. What care he uses. What intentionality. It says, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah. Now, why do we hear that? I mean, what's the deal? It's Joab's brother and the son of Zeruah. Okay, Zeruah is David's sister. Abishai is David's nephew. And here's what David knows about his nephew and his nephew's two brothers. They have never, not a one of them, seen a fight they didn't want to be a part of. Not one of them. And they have never been issued a challenge that they have turned down either. David knows the heart of his nephew. He carefully chooses who he's going to make this challenge to. He knows that his nephew will find it irresistible. Is it crazy? Yes, I'm in. I'm in. And I suspect he knows that Ahimelech will say, you know what, that that sounds like something maybe you, you guys should do. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, David's nephew, he says, who will go down with me into the camp, meaning into Saul's camp, and now notice where exactly in the camp that David proposes going. He's not hiding anything. To Saul, dead center in the middle of 3,000, you know, the best soldiers in all of Israel. And then we read that, very predictably, in David's mind at least, Abishai pushed Ahimelech out of the way and said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai went down into Saul's army by night and snuck through the mass of 3,000 sleeping soldiers to the very center of the camp. And then there in the very center of the camp lay Saul sleeping, here it is again, within the encampment or, or literally within the circle of the encampment is the idea, in the most holy, most inviolable, impenetrable place with his spear, which is the symbol of what? Death. Stuck in the ground where? At his head. 
And Abner, the commander of Saul's army and the chief protector of the king and the entire army that was under the command of Abner is the point, lay around Saul sleeping. And their neglect has caused Saul's life to be threatened. Because we then read that Abishai said to David, what David knew when he chose him for the mission, he would say to David in just this moment. He says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, which, by the way, is exactly what all 600 of his men had said back in the cave when Saul wandered in to use the restroom. And so he says, now, please let me, and I love this language, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And then he says to David, and I will not have to strike him twice. He's saying, look, here's the deal. (laughs) I'm a good shot, particularly up close, and I'm just asking for one shot. All I want to do is relocate the spear. That's it. Now, if I happen to put it through the head of Saul in the process, so be it. But I just want to move it from here to here. That's all I'm asking you for. I don't feel like that's too much. Why in the world else have we snuck all the way through this camp? Why have we risked our lives, David, to come all the way here? And incidentally, they're all asleep. Don't you find that a little miraculous? Seems like God is kind of participating in this story, in this venture. Why else did we come if not to kill the king? Why indeed? Because, hey, God, here he is. You deal with it. Not enough. And David's men and hopefully the rest of us will discover that today. It says, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Notice he's thought this through. The Lord will strike him. Yeah, you remember last chapter, last story? You remember that guy Nabal that we entrusted to the Lord? He was dead in 10 days. The Lord struck him, it says specifically. David knows God is not incapable of taking him out. And he's willing to wait. Hey, Lord, you deal with it however and whenever you would like. Even though in the meantime, I'm going to be running for my life, I guess, living in the wilderness places. My family is going to be off in Moab. These guys are going to be freaking out. We're trying to figure out what to eat day after day after day after day after day in this place of nothing. But I'll wait. David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die. He'll die of old age if I have to wait that long or disease perhaps, or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. However, he does want Abishai to do something with the spear, with the symbol of death. For he says, but take now the spear, that is this symbol of death, that is at Saul's head and the jar of water. Now, what is that the symbol of? Particularly in the wilderness. Without it, you will die. It's the symbol of life. It's water. Take the symbols of life and death that are at the head of of Saul and let us go. And so David, through Abishai, took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away and no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep. And why is that? Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Look, when you read through the Bible and you read a phrase like deep sleep from the Lord, you have to be thinking to yourself, my goodness, you know, that sounds... Kind of familiar. I mean, where else have I heard that? Where else has the Lord done that? Where else have we seen that? Because it's very rare, but it's also very famous. The Lord God comes to the first man in the second chapter of the whole Bible, and he says, you know what? It's not good for the man to be alone. Okay, here's the answer. I will make a, quote, helper suitable for him. 
And he causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he is sleeping, he makes that helper. And so what is the expectation of Adam, that first man, while he sleeps this deep sleep? It is that he will be awakened, A, and B, when he is awakened, he will be presented definitively with the helper made suitable for him. In his case, with the woman. David is hoping that Saul will have a similar experience, but the helper made suitable is David. And he wants Saul to wake up and realize it. And so he's manufactured this massive web of circumstances to create a story in which Abner has failed him as his helper and protector. And David has been the one who, though he had every possible reason in the world and the whole world would have risen up and applauded him and said, finally, if he would have killed Saul, David instead saves Saul's life. He's a genius. David. He is absolutely brilliant. So they take the spear, they take the water, the symbols of life and death from the head of Saul, they leave the camp. And then we read in verse 13 that then David went over to the other side of the valley is the point and stood far off, far off. You hear that? Way away on the top of the hill opposite the hillside that Saul and his guys are encamped on. And then it's emphasized because it then says, with a great space between them. So they're far off. There's a great space between them. Why why is that? Because David is no dummy. David has been interacting with Saul for, my goodness, how many years now? Lots. David has heard words of repentance and seen tears of it coming out of the mouth and out of the eyes of this man. What David hasn't seen are the fruits of repentance. David is risking everything to pursue this man's soul. But he's very wise in putting a valley between him and them. There's a wisdom to that too. So David went over to the other side of the valley. He stood far off on the top of the hill across from them with a great space between them. And then David called out, but not to Saul. He calls out to the army, and in particular to Abner, who is the commander of the army and is supposed to be the helper of Saul and his chief protector, saying, will you not answer Abner? And then Abner woke up and answered. He said, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? He's saying, listen, in the flow chart of Israel, there's Saul, and then there's you, and then there's everyone else. There's no one like you in Israel, and here is your chief duty. It is protect Saul. And nobody stayed awake. 3,000 guys, none of them and not even you. That's the idea. Are you not a man who is like you in all Israel? And so then why have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people, and I knew this would happen because he's my crazy nephew, came with me as the point into your camp. And he came to destroy the king, your Lord. I came is the implication, so that unlike you, I could save him. I could rescue him. And so he says to Abner, he says, this thing that you have done is not good as the Lord lives. You deserve to die because you have not kept watch over the Lord or over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And just in case you don't believe me, he says, now take a look around and, you know, See where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. Take your time. Call in the FBI if you need to. I've got nothing but time. We're good. If you want to save some time, I can just tell you, here's the spear right here and here's the jar. But check it out. Then we read that Saul, who together with everyone else in the camp is now wide awake, no doubt, 
scrambling around looking for the spear in the water jar, recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O King. And then if I can just summarize, David says, My goodness, man, what are you doing? Why are you pursuing me? Why do you want to kill me? Why are you seeking to kill your single greatest asset as the ruler of Israel? Why are you looking to put to death your most faithful, your most loyal, your most capable servant? Why would you seek to put to death the one who risked his life to prove to you that his heart for you is to be one with you? And more significantly than that, it is to see you made whole with your God. Again and again, I've been given opportunity to kill you. And I could have just left. I didn't even have to risk my life on this occasion. And yet I continue to pursue you for very different reasons than you are pursuing me. But both of them have to do with life and perhaps even death. And we read in verse 21 that Saul said, I have sinned, so he repents. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, he says, I have acted foolishly. Well, that's an understatement. And have made a great mistake. Really? No kidding? But does David return? Nope. He's waiting for the fruits. He's heard the words before. And this too is part of his wisdom. And so David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king, the symbol of death, and in this case of your death, Let one of the young men come over here and take it because I'm not going to bring it to you. And I'm not sending my guys to bring it either. And he says to to the king's heart, he says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. He's drawing a distinction. He says, for the Lord gave you into my hand today and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but instead I entrusted my vengeance against you to the Lord. I said, you know what? Here he is. You you take care of him, God. He's yours and, and I'll... I'll wait. (laughs) It'll be hard, but your timing, your way. But more than that, he pursued him. In wisdom, he carefully and cautiously sought his reconciliation. Not just with him, but to the Lord. He says, behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all the tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way. And Saul returned to his place. And we get to the end then of the third of three vengeance stories, which come to us and say, okay, listen, step number one. (laughs) Hey, God, here he is. You deal with him. But that's not enough. Step number two is, how can I carefully, cautiously, strategically, and even perhaps at great risk, at least in this case, try to win the heart of my offender and win it, not just to me, win it to the Lord. Because that's the heart of David, and it's not just the heart of David, it's the heart of Jesus. Our king is a king who loves his enemies. And biblically speaking, all we need really to do 
to recognize that, to come face to face with that is first to look in the mirror and then secondly to look at the cross because the Bible comes and says, let me tell you who you really were before you had faith in Jesus. You were at enmity with God. You were an enemy of God. But God sent His Son into the hostility of this world, into this camp, if you will. And the camp was wide awake when He came. And He went nonetheless knowing that he wasn't going to make it out with the symbols of life and death. He was going to live and then die himself, be pierced by a spear to prove that he's dead. And he did that to win you, his enemy, to himself, to make you who were far away members of his family, sons and daughters of the true king. And then here's what he comes to us and does. He says, hey, guess what? Keep those two images in mind. Because here's now what I want you to do. I want you to go to a world that does not understand vengeance is the Lord's and cannot comprehend you seeking actively to do anything good for anyone who has harmed you. They don't celebrate that. They don't look for that. They don't applaud that. That is not the ethic of this world. I want this world to see my heart alive and well in you through the way that you handle your enemies. Jesus says this in Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. He says, but I say to you who hear. Ah, isn't that curious? He doesn't just say, I say to you. There is a hearing. He recognizes that some hear and don't. Some don't. But I say to you who hear, love those who love you. No, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So, with all that in mind, who's your Saul? We've asked that question several times throughout the course of this series, haven't we? So we've got that dialed in, generally speaking. What are you doing with your Saul? What are you really doing? Are you listening to the voices of the world who are in the cave with you going, hey man, this is your prime opportunity to just take it to this person, you know? To bring them down, to give them what they deserve as opposed to what they don't deserve, which is incidentally is what God in Christ has given to us, isn't it? And that's what he's seeking to replicate in our lives. A giving to others of what actually they don't deserve based on what we ourselves have been given. What are you doing with your Saul? Are you entrusting him to the Lord and saying, you know what, you deal with it and swallow, big gulp, okay? However and whenever you want, in this life or in the next, I'm entrusting this person to you. If so, great, but then the next question and the last one is, well, then what are you doing for that person? How are you loving and doing good to your enemy? How are you blessing and praying even for your enemy. Knowing that you may have to put a valley between you and that person, and that's prudent too. <laughs> I get that. But work that through. Who is your enemy? What are you doing with him? What are you doing for him? Because we have been given great grace, undeserved favor. And we are, in order to put Christ on display, to do that as well. Hey, God, here he is. You deal with it. That's awesome. It's not enough. Let's pray.
Father, as we come to your table this morning, we recognize that it is a table that you have prepared by means of the real broken body and by means of the real shed blood of the one who took upon himself our sin and in our place allowed his body to be pierced and rended and broken and shed his blood unto death, though he himself is completely innocent. Lord, we praise you for the table that you have set and for the spirit who calls us by faith to lay down our weapons to lay down our attempts to win your love and favor and recognize that that's impossible. Lord, simply to claim Jesus as our righteousness, as our life, as our Savior. I pray that we might do that. God, as we come to this table, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us. You would speak to our hearts in this particular issue, perhaps, You might challenge us as to how we're seeking satisfaction in something or in someone other than Christ. Lord, that we might confess that as sin and turn from it and find our satisfaction here together with our brothers and sisters at this table that you've prepared at the expense of of the life of your son. Lord, bring us here repentant and let us walk away joyful. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are going to come to the table of the Lord, and as I say every time that we do this, it's a table of forgiveness. So it's a table that calls us before we come to talk to the Lord about our sin. And maybe that has a, it's a sin that, you know, God was talking to you and prompting you about in the message today, or maybe it's just something else completely that He prompts you in in this moment. That you confess and that you ask for His forgiveness, that you turn from, and that you come to receive the symbols spiritually of, of that forgiveness. It's a table for the forgiven, meaning it's for believers in Christ, those who have done that, who have confessed their sin and have clung to Christ and recognized Him as their only hope of any salvation. He is the one who bridged the gap, if you will, the valley that was between us and God at the expense of His body and blood. But it's a table of unity too. It's not just the table of our church. You don't have to be a member to come to the table. You just need to be a believer in Christ to come to the table. And we share this table together with believers all over the place who do this every Sabbath day with us as well, just in different locations. But there is something implied in that unity, and I think that what's implied in that unity is that we deal with our own disunity before we come to the table, meaning sometimes our Saul, perish the thought, is another Christian. Isn't that true? And what this table calls us to do is to deal with that before we come here. So if you're not a believer, don't come to the table, but do consider this table. If you are a believer, but you're out of fellowship with another believer, well, then don't come to the table, but fix it between now and next month. But otherwise, do business with the Lord where you are. We're not in a hurry. And then come to the table and be thankful for these physical symbols you can take in today, not just with your ears, but with your eyes, with your hands, with your mouth, with your you know, sensories, with your nose even, your sense of smell the salvation of the Lord. He's ordained it that way, that you interact with it on all of these different levels. So interact with it on all of these different levels, recognizing that as you do, you are simply replicating all the way back to the upper room the faith of every generation of believers to this day.
The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would speak to us now in this time. Lord, that he would convict us of sin, but far more than that, that he would convict us of the freedom and of the forgiveness of the joy and of the salvation that is ours simply through faith in your Son. He is our hero, champion, and king. And in him, we enjoy your great favor. So let us enjoy your great favor as we come joyously to your table this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.